Today at Reader's Corner, Nate Schweber, author of the new book, This America of Ours, Bernard and Avis DeVoto, and the Forgotten Fight to Save the Wild. I'm Bob Custer. Welcome to Reader's Corner. In late 1940s America, few writers commanded attention like Bernard DeVoto. Alongside his brilliant wife and editor, Avis, DeVoto was a firebrand of American liberty, free speech, and perhaps our greatest national treasure, public lands. But when a corrupt band of lawmakers sought to quietly cede millions of acres of national park and western lands to logging, mining, and ranching interests, the DeVotos entered the fight of their lives. In his book, This America of Ours, Bernard and Avis DeVoto, and the Forgotten Fight to Save the Wild, journalist Nate Schweber uncovers the forgotten story of a progressive alliance that altered the course of 20th century history and saved much of the American wilderness from ruin. Nate Schweber is an award-winning journalist for the New York Times, and in 2020, a ProPublica series, he contributed to win the Pulitzer Prize for national reporting. Nate Schweber, welcome to Reader's Corner. Bob, it's a real pleasure and honor to be here. Thank you. Well, I just loved your book, and as I was telling you, uh, I no sooner read it that I wrote a column about it in the Idaho Statesman, which people can go see if they care to. But in the meantime, let's get started here with this incredible man, Bernard DeVoto. Why don't we start off with your giving us just a thumbnail sketch of who he was in his time, and then, as I say, uh, I've got a lot of questions that can follow. Great. Uh, In his heyday, which was around the 1930s through the 1950s, he was one of the most prominent and important writers in America. Uh, He could have very controversial opinions that he would state very forcefully. So he was also a kind of an infamous writer, but he was born in Ogden, Utah. He went to Harvard University in 1915. He started writing for Harper's Magazine in the 1930s. That really gave him a national platform and a national voice. And he also wrote a trilogy of nonfiction about the West, that uh, a trilogy of books that would win a Pulitzer Prize and a National Book Award. So he was widely recognized in his day as the authority about the West, about Western history, and about conservation. There's not many biographies that are written uh, about a guy. And of course, yours is a very concentrated period of time you've focused on here. Uh, The guy had other things going on in his life, I'm sure. But there's not many that you would read where the spouse is absolutely as critical to uh, success. Tell us about uh, Avis and how they met and what role she plays in his life. Sure. Um, and yeah, I'm glad you picked that up. And that was one of the things that really interest me, interested me in this project is because Avis DeVoto was so important and there would never have been a Bernard DeVoto were it not for Avis DeVoto. They were an awesome team. They were an awesome pair. They met at Northwestern University in 1922 and they bonded over their love of books and they dreamed of producing literature together, Bernard as a writer and Avis as his editor. And She was a genius editor, copy editor, proofreader, indexer. She answered a lot of his mail. She also, like, kept him in a home. She bore their two sons. Um, He could be a tortured artist at times, and she got him through some pretty dark depressions. But she was his partner in everything, including his traveling partner when he did these epic reporting trips into the U.S. West. And one of the ironies of of the story of the Devotos is that as prominent as Bernard Devoto was in his day, 
uh, he has kind of fallen away from prominence, whereas Avis has grown in prominence and today is probably the most prominent devoto uh, because she's also known for being best friends with Julia Child, the uh, cookbook author and French chef. Right. That's a great part of the story. I, I said to one of my friends, I said, it's like reading two books. Because you're reading the story of, of Bernard, but then you get into Avis's life. And we'll talk about that if we have time a little later because I want to cover what uh, Avis does after, uh, after Bernard is no longer around. Let's put it that way for now. Uh, but there's a villain in your book. Well, there's a number of villains in your book. But the, the villain that, that really got to me because I didn't know as much about him as I did somebody like J. Edgar Hoover or Joe McCarthy – is Patrick McCarran. And in case that name is familiar to any Westerner that's ever flown into Las Vegas, it's because his name, McCarran, is on the airport, which I found to be absolutely nutty and couldn't believe that by now they wouldn't have taken it off. But uh, Actually, I think just earlier this year, I think they did rename the airport. Oh, so did they really? Oh, okay, great. Mm-hmm, yeah. yeah, I knew I knew that it was a controversy. And yeah. um, But you tell the story. Why would they do that? I mean, who was this guy? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Patrick McCarran is all, you know, Bernard DeVoto was born and raised in Ogden, Utah, which is part of the Great Basin. Pat McCarran, his nemesis, is born on the other side of the Great Basin near Reno, Nevada. And he becomes one of the most powerful and greedy and corrupt and paranoid and vengeful and absolutely genius politicians to ever serve in the U.S. government. And he, in the 1930s, um, though he was a Democrat, he went to war against uh, fellow Democrat Franklin D. Roosevelt. And one of the things that Franklin Roosevelt did to help stop the Dust Bowl of the dirty 30s was to create a federal conservation agency that was to be a sibling agency to the one that FDR's fifth cousin Teddy Roosevelt had created the Forest Service, FDR created an agency called the Grazing Service. And that was to protect the prairies and the deserts in the dry U.S. West. And McCarran went to war against that in the 30s and the 40s. And he ended up destroying the Grazing Service. And he cut its budget so deeply that it was reorganized into what we now know today as the BLM, the Bureau of Land Management, which should have been named the Bureau of Pat McCarran. Um, Ed Abbey, the writer, would one day call the BLM the Bureau of Livestock and Mining. And that's exactly what Pat McCarran wanted. Um, But come the 1950s, in the 1940s, McCarran became so paranoid that he began to suspect that communists were going to overtake America. And he started swearing that he would hunt these communists. And in the 1950s, uh, Wisconsin Senator Joe McCarthy, for whom the McCarthy era is named, he began to act like Pat McCarran. And he discovered that if he said the things that Pat McCarran had previously said, he could get a lot of attention for that. So uh, Joe McCarthy had a genius for publicity and attracting attention, but Pat McCarran had a genius for legislating. So the actual laws that codify uh, McCarthyism, which are some of the most oppressive laws that were ever passed in the United States, those were done by Pat McCarran. So uh, Pat McCarran really is the godfather of of McCarthyism. You don't get McCarthyism without Pat McCarran. And let's talk about McCarthyism for a minute in, in terms of the life and career 
of Bernard DeVoto. I mean, this was a period, as most of us know, where people's careers were ruined, where they, they were wiped out financially because they were blacklisted, as I believe Bernard DeVoto was. But was. this guy, DeVoto, was I mean, he was the most courageous dude in town. There is nothing he wouldn't do in striking out. And while most of of these folks who McCarthy went after uh, would do everything they could to avoid him, uh, tell the story of how DeVoto handles it because he just kind of takes them on and takes yeah. off on a tour. Yeah, Devoto stepped up and he leaned into it and he did not back down. Um, Devoto in the 1940s wrote um, some exposés, some really great investigative journalism, some exposés that helped stop an attempt to sell off hundreds of millions of acres of public land in the West, which Pat McCarran was ultimately behind. And when Devoto uh, went after Pat McCarran in print, Devoto got attacked on national TV and national radio by Pat McCarran's understudy, Joe McCarthy. And uh, DeVoto was one of the first people in a national magazine to criticize Joe McCarthy. And one of the really concerning things to DeVoto was this rhetorical way of speaking that Joe McCarthy had to smear people, to, uh, you know, to, to assassinate their character by illusion and gossip and rumor and association. And he would write the most controversial column of his career in late 1949. It was an article titled Due Notice to the FBI. It ran in Harper's Magazine, and it not only criticized Joe McCarthy, but it criticized this growing atmosphere of McCarthyism, whereby the FBI, which had been empowered to conduct loyalty investigations of Americans, the FBI was starting to collect this McCarthyist type of talk, uh, you know, rumor and gossip and backbiting and slander and hearsay. These type things were finding their way into FBI files. So throughout the McCarthy era, uh, Devoto, you know, planted his feet on the ground and he said, this is a threat to the Bill of Rights. This can threat Americans' right to free speech. This threatens Americans' right to due process. And he was consistent about that for the rest of his life. You know, when it comes to this uh, McCarran plot, to, and it wasn't just McCarran, but he was obviously the leader, to get rid of public lands altogether, I think the, one of the quotes was, the pl- I think this came from DeVoto, that's in your book, the plan is to get rid of public lands altogether, turning them over to the states, which can be coerced, as the federal government cannot be, and eventually to private ownership. When I read that, I remembered Mark Twain's famous quote, History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Yeah. <laughs> and isn't it interesting? I mean, you, you can fill us in. I don't know a lot about this, but, but uh, there, there are Republicans today who have introduced measures to sell off uh, public land. In fact, I think in my column, I mentioned Senator Lee from Utah sure. who had a plan to do that. Is that not correct? Yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. And there's there's levels of irony in that, that, you know, some of the most anti-public lands bills and legislation would come from the home state, Utah, of one of the greatest champions of public land in American history. And it's also, you know, there's an irony in that. Uh, yes, there are modern Republicans that want to sell off public lands, and those modern Republicans are acting like old Democrats. Yeah, isn't that amazing? You're listening to Nate Schweber. He is the author of This America of Ours, Bernard and Avis DeVoto and the Forgotten Fight. 
to save the wild. Uh, so let's talk about the blacklisting. I mean, Devoto had some financial consequences, didn't he? I mean, well, first of all, the Harvard issue, I found that very interesting as a former professor and and uh, a guy who knows something about higher ed. Here's a guy who goes to Harvard and then he's denied tenure. I mean, right. that in itself is a is a financial consequence of, of sorts. And then on top of that, um, it's this blacklisting. I mean, this, this guy's uh, – Going to have to really work hard for a living in different ways that he intended, I suppose. Yeah, he was he was such a free thinker. He was so independent. He was so maverick in his thinking that in the 1930s, when he was trying to get tenure at Harvard, um, you know this this was when the Great Depression happened and the stock market crashed and. Millions of Americans thought that capitalism might be done with, and a lot of Americans uh, looked to Soviet Russia, new Soviet Russia, as possibly, you know, what this utopian future. And within the realm of academia and literature, nobody more vociferously and more often wrote that they were idiots than Bernard DeVoto. He said that anybody that thought that communism was a good idea, anybody that thought that Karl Marx was smart, was suffering from a, quote, imbecile delusion. So in the 1930s, Bernard DeVoto got called a fascist. Then come the 1950s in the McCarthy era, when the nation swung very far to the right, Bernard DeVoto was called a communist which was highly ironic. But yet, just as he was denied tenure at Harvard University in the 1930s for running against uh, the popular consensus of the time, in the 1950s, when he once again zigged when the nation was zagging, he got called a communist and he did get blacklisted from some of the biggest magazines in America, from the Saturday Evening Post, from Reader's Digest, from Fortune Magazine. So, you know, that was a crisis for conservation, because the Devotos were the most important spokespeople for conservation of that era. It was also a crisis for the Devoto family because that was their livelihood. If Bernard couldn't get published, they couldn't keep a roof over their head. And I tell in the book the story of, of how the Devotos worked through that. Let's talk for a, for a moment about um, Roald Peterson. And I believe he may have been connected to that FBI article that um, Bernard wrote in Harper's the art, the column was called the Easy Chair. You mentioned that, and he did it for twenty years. But uh, the reason I I focus on Peterson is just to give our listeners a little bit of a recollection of what life was like back then, then, and how your your life could be ruined for no good reason at all because a Joe McCarthy or Patrick McCarran would take off after you and and make some outrageous accusation. And I gather that's what happened to Peterson. Yeah, I'm, I'm gratified that you picked up on that. Um, one of the questions that I had when working on this book was, yes, Bernard DeVoto in late 1949 came out with the most controversial column that he ever wrote, due notice to the FBI. And when that column hit, as strange as it is to say in the year 2022, in the early 50s, J. Edgar Hoover had something like an 80% approval rating. Most Americans thought that the FBI was unquestionably awesome. And so Bernard DeVoto, in that atmosphere, criticized the FBI. And J. Edgar Hoover was furious. And he launched an investigation into the question that was driving him crazy. J. Edgar Hoover wanted to know, did Bernard DeVoto find out about a specific investigation. And from that specific investigation, did he find out about actual tactics that the FBI was using in these loyalty investigations? 
And I thought if I could find the person who inspired Devoto to write this column, that it would likely be one of his neighbors in Cambridge. I was thinking it might be a Harvard professor. So I was shocked to learn that it was a gentleman named Roald Peterson. And he grew up on a homestead in North Dakota. And in the mid-1940s, he came to my hometown, Missoula, Montana, to work for the Forest Service as a range ecologist. He taught rotational grazing to ranchers so that they could conserve grass. And this was exactly the type of public servant that Pat McCarran wanted to drive out of public service. And uh, Rogue Peterson, two anonymous sources, they're still anonymous in his FBI file, two anonymous sources said that he had been a communist. That was wrong, but that triggered investigations into Rold. And when Rold was investigated, Montanans of every political stripe came out and spoke in his defense and said he was a loyal American, he was a helpful Montanan, he was an asset to the state. Montana's entire congressional delegation agreed. Um, But when he was investigated, it was hell on his family. And his wife suffered a psychotic break. Um, She was from Louisiana originally, and her father had her committed to, and they called them in those days, an insane asylum in Louisiana. And while his wife was on her way to this insane asylum, um, she talked to a gentleman who decided to inform again to the FBI about Rold. And that guy, based on this conversation with a soon-to-be ex-spouse literally on her way to the, an insane asylum, told the FBI that he assumed that Rold Peterson must be gay. And because he was falsely accused of being gay, he was investigated again. And when he was investigated again, he lost his job. He lost his ranch in the Bitterroot Valley. He and his wife had three kids and a Montana judge trying to decide custody between an institutionalized mom and a dad accused of being a communist falsely. Uh, the judge put the kids in foster care and they were abused in foster care and Rold ended up leaving the United States and his two youngest kids ended up killing themselves. This was the human cost of McCarthyism. Yeah, that is really, really well put in a very sad, sad part of this story. Well, let's talk about his academic career for a minute, because this is a guy who who really, even though he didn't get tenure at Harvard, he was a PhD and he was a academic historian. And um, he wrote this book that won the National Book Award, The Course of Empire. But I think I read in your book somewhere that it was a it was a treatment that was criticized by some, given the fact that he was giving so much credit to the white settlers and perhaps so little to native lands and peoples. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah. And I think that's why Bernard DeVoto is largely forgotten today. He was certainly a man of his time and he was a, it's a lot more complicated than to just say he was rah, rah manifest destiny. But as a historian, he looked at manifest destiny as something that was unique on this earth and therefore extraordinarily fascinating. He set out to chronicle that. So he did that in The Course of Empire, and he did it in his other books too. Um, So he was a man of his time, and although for his time – he did some things that would that were in their day uh, very progressive regarding Native American rights and land rights. Um, today, they're not seen as, as being as progressive. 
but he found his voice writing nonfiction about the West. And he was fascinated with the story of Manifest Destiny. And he was fascinated with uh, the story of how that happened, how people went West. And again, not to say that he was celebrating Manifest Destiny or calling it unmitigatedly good, but he was fascinated in it as a historical event and all of the adventures that all of the characters that are involved in Manifest Destiny shared, um, the trappers and the explorers and the settlers and all the Native American tribes. Devoto was really an expert on all the Native American tribes of the West. He was fascinated in, in the historical dramas of what exactly happened in the West. You're listening to Reader's Corner. My guest today is Nate Schweber, award-winning journalist and author of the book, This America of Ours, Bernard and Avis Devoto and the Forgotten Fight to Save the Wild. So there were so many successes of Devoto over the years when it comes to fighting for public lands, but let's just take one that occupies a fairly uh, major part of your book, and that's the Echo Park dam controversy. And one of the reasons I, I picked that one is that the Colorado River is involved. And it's hard to turn on the news these days when you don't hear some report of the Colorado River being way short of the water it needs to feed the uh, southwest. Uh, yeah. So maybe, maybe and, and in a way, what, what Bernard did, if he didn't do what he did, we might be in worse shape now than than we are. Yeah. Um, come the 1950s, the great conservation crisis in the West was dam building. And that was very, very complicated. It's still, as I'm talking to people in Idaho, they know better than anybody. Dams are a very, very complicated conservation issue because the economic benefits versus ecological harm, it's a really tough balance to strike. But it became a crisis in the 1950s because so many of the places where dams could be built, dams had already been built and you need certain physical parameters to build a dam. You need a canyon. And come the 1950s, some of the only canyon lands left in the West were inside national parks. And the Bureau of Reclamation, just as Nevada Senator Pat McCarran could take money away from the U.S. Grazing Service in order to kill it, he poured millions of dollars using his power on the Appropriations Committee into the Bureau of Reclamation, which builds dams. And that was matched by hundreds of millions of dollars more that went into the Army Corps of Engineers, which also builds dams. So in the 1950s, those two agencies, which had been bloated by Pat McCarran, they drew up plans to build dams either inside or close enough to flood out significant portions of the Grand Canyon and Yellowstone National Park and Glacier National Park and Kings Canyon National Park and Mammoth Cave National Park in Tennessee and Fort Donaldson National Battlefield. But the very first domino to drop, the precedent setter, was going to be a dam called the Echo Park Dam, which would be built on the Green River inside of Dinosaur National Monument. And that straddles the border of Colorado and Devoto's home state of Utah. So that was the crisis situation. If that dam, if the Echo Park Dam could be built inside Dinosaur National Monument, that would set the precedent for all the other dams that were planned to go forward. And that would set the precedent that, you know, if the United States could not protect uh, national parks, its best preserved public lands, no other acre of public land could stand a chance from being exploited and eventually liquidated. So isn't it interesting that um, Avis DeVoto would be the one to weigh in on sure. Bernard DeVoto's biography, 
written by Wallace Stegner, who helped uh, really, or whose whose career was really launched in part by Bernard Devoto, who gave him a very good uh, review for uh, that's right. One of his first. What was the name that, that book? The one of the in in the in the, the big the rock. 19th, yeah. Oh, in the mid nineteen seventies, uh, Wallace Stegner wrote the first biography of Bernard Devoto. It was called The Easy Chair, but the book that Bernard wrote a rave review of and really launched Stegner's career. Yeah. That was the Big Rock Candy Mountain. Yeah. Right. And and I remember you're, you're uh, talking about the fact that uh, there were critics, probably really good friends of Avis and Bernard, who felt that Stegner had had shorted Avis a bit, yeah. <laughs> that she didn't get nearly the credit. But uh, you can tell the rest of the story. I well, thought and, and that, was where, that was where I found a niche to write the book that I wrote. Um, because Avis Devoto, you know, in their day, um, one of the ways that uh, Bernard and Avis Devoto were opposite but complementary was Bernard loved attention. He didn't mind being controversial. He didn't mind getting national attention. Avis hated the spotlight. She (laughs) treasured her privacy. And so after Bernard died, the only writer who she would allow to write his biography in her lifetime was Wallace Stegner. And, um, and, and because Stegner so respected and so revered Avis, when he wrote his biography of Bernard Devoto, he left Avis mostly out of it. And that was a criticism of the bio- of the biography that Stegner wrote, is that it didn't have enough Avis in it. And again, that was by design. That was him honoring her wishes and her desire to stay private and stay out of the limelight, which she hated. But uh, the one of the places where she does turn up in that book, and it's 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 powerful. She uh, she allows Stegner to quote her saying that her husband Bernard Devoto was quote the bravest damn man I ever knew. Oh, I thought that was such a great quote. I managed to get that in the column. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit about Avis. I mean, uh, first of all, how did Julia Child get into Avis's life? Number one, and then number two, uh, outside of the Julia Child relationship, or maybe related to it, uh, Avis picked up on Bernard's work. And I believe it was at Harvard where there was an an environmental issue of some kind, and mm-hmm. she just jumped right in and played Bernard Devoto all again. Yeah, it was cool. Um, you know, the 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 friendship between Avis Devoto and Julia Child is very famous, and rightfully so. It's very well documented, and it's just a wonderful friendship. Um, it, there was a best selling book of selected letters between Avis and Julia. There's the movie Julie and Julia from 2009. Deborah Rush plays Avis Devoto right now on HBO Max. Is a show called Julia. BB Newworth is playing Avis Devoto. So uh, a lot of people know about this wonderful friendship between Avis Devoto and Julia Child, but that came about, it goes back to Bernard Devoto fighting for public lands and getting blacklisted when he's attacked by Pat McCarran's understudy, Joe McCarthy. To compensate for Devoto getting blacklisted, he and Avis began working more closely together than ever before to brainstorm different types of stories that he could write, sometimes under a pseudonym, to compensate for his getting blacklisted. And Avis recommended that Bernard write about kitchen knives. And after he did, under his own name in Harper's Magazine, he got a fan letter from an aspiring cookbook author living in Paris, Julia Child. Uh And Avis answered a lot of Bernard's fan mail. So she wrote Julia back and they became best friends for life. And Avis promptly, Avis was, you know, since she was a little girl, she was fascinated with cooking. And when Julia confided to her that she had a dream of writing an epic 
cookbook of French recipes for Americans. Avis was so excited by this idea that she said she would use all of Bernard's contacts in the publishing industry to get Julia Child a book deal. So Avis promised Julia that she would make her a star. Then Avis kept that promise. And after Bernard DeVoto died in 1955, he was 58. Avis was only 51 and she was very uh, devastated. But she found a new professional partner in her life in Julia Child. Mm -hmm. Uh, The professional skills that she lent to Bernard DeVoto in the second half of her life, she lent those to Julia Child. And for a while, conservation was kind of a touchy issue for her because she was in such mourning for Bernard DeVoto. But uh, it it came down to her adopted hometown of Cambridge, Massachusetts. There was a plan to chop down some ancient uh, London plane trees, which were along the Charles River. There was a plan to cut those down to build a memorial for John F. Kennedy in Cambridge. And it was a tricky position for Avis to to hold because, of course, she wanted to pay tribute to John F. Kennedy, who she knew. Um, But she wanted to do it in a not as ostentatious way as had been planned. So she and some women in Cambridge, they stopped the chopping down of these um, handsome trees and they got a JFK Memorial Park built in Cambridge. And, um, and for her efforts, uh, the Cambridge City Council honored Avis in the mid-1980s by etching her name into a ledge in Harvard Square. So I think I have time for one more question and I want to bring it back to Idaho. There are two things in your book that really uh, stuck out for me. Uh, one was um, the possibility of naming the National Forest in North Idaho for Bernard DeVoto. And uh, I think today that forest is named the Nez Perce Clearwater Forest. Is that that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And um, so (laughs) uh, there was a senator in Idaho, Herman Welker, who I've never heard of before, way back in the day, who just vetoed that idea. That wasn't going to happen. But in its place, there is something up there Uh, that uh, is very special, and I want to make sure our Idahoans know about it in case they're ever driving across that smaller part of Idaho uh, to stop at at this memorial grove. Tell us about how Bernard found that or respected it and then how it comes to be. That's great. I'm glad you're bringing it around to this. Uh, Again, one of the ironies of Bernard DeVoto is though he's born and raised in Utah, he's the only Utah, he's the first Utah native Utah to win a Pulitzer Prize. He is honored nowhere in the state of Utah. The Western state where Bernard DeVoto is honored is Idaho at the top of the Bitterroot Mountains along Highway 12, just before the border of Montana is a grove of beautiful, ancient, huge red cedar trees. And that's along the Lewis and Clark Trail. So that's how Bernard DeVoto discovered that grove as he was researching Lewis and Clark's trail. And he'd stopped by there many times and returned to it many times. And when he died, Avis had his ashes scattered over uh, the Clearwater National Forest, which you're, you're correct. There was, um, there was a bill that was introduced to Congress by an Oregon senator to rename the Clearwater National Forest the Devoto National Forest. And yes, Idaho senator, short-term senator, a great ally of Joe McCarthy, such an ally that his nickname was <laughs> Little Joe from Idaho. Yeah, Herman great. Welker vetoed that. But um, the Forest Service, because they so appreciated what Bernard Devoto had done to protect 
protect their institution. And with President Kennedy's blessing, they named that red cedar grove on the top of the Bitterroot Mountains just before the Montana border. They named that the Devoto Memorial Cedar Grove. And Bernard Devoto's ashes were spread above it. And in 2003, um, Mark Devoto, who is the last surviving son of the Devotos, he brought Avis's ashes there and scattered them. So he brought his parents back together. Bernard and Avis Devoto, both symbolically and literally, came back together at the Devoto Memorial Cedar Grove in Idaho. What a fitting way to conclude our conversation, uh, Nate. And I want to remind our listeners again that this is all about a book that uh, should be read by all of us who treasure the West and its public lands, uh, this America of ours, Bernard and Avis Devoto and the Forgotten Fight to Save the Wild. Uh, you will so much enjoy this book. Nate Schweber, thanks so much for joining us today at Reader's Corner. Bob, it's been an enormous pleasure. Thank you. Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio News. The engineer for today's show is Eric Jones with production by Joel Wayne. I'm Bob Kustra. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner. <laughs>